Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the prisoner swap in which the U.S. got the women's basketball star Brittany Griner back and Russia got the notorious arms dealer Victor Boot back. Joining us to look into the possibility that more deals could be made with Putin in search for an end to his brutal war in Ukraine is George Beebe, the director of grand strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He served in government for nearly 25 years, including as director of Russia analysis at the CIA and as a White House advisor on Russia matters to Vice President Dick Cheney. His latest book is The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe. Then we will get an appraisal of Victor Boot, the merchant of death and why Putin wanted him back, and speak with Stephen Brown, the former national security editor for the Associated Press. A former national correspondent based in Washington for the Los Angeles Times, he shared the Times' 1991 Pulitzer Prize for coverage of the Los Angeles riots and a 2002 Overseas Press Club International Reporting Award for Inside Al-Qaeda, a series of stories about the group's rise. He is the co-author, along with Douglas Farah, of a book about Victor Boot, Merchant of Death, Money, Guns, Planes and the Man Who Makes War Possible. Then we'll look into the dangers facing Americans who travel to Russia, China, Iran and Venezuela, where hostage-taking of Americans is a way to gain leverage over the U.S. government. Joining us is Peter Bergen, the author or editor of eight books, including three New York Times bestsellers and four Washington Post best nonfiction books of the year. A vice president at the New America Foundation, he is a professor at Arizona State University and a national security analyst for CNN. He has testified before congressional committees 18 times about national security issues and has held teaching positions in Harvard and Johns Hopkins University. His latest book is The Cost of Chaos, The Trump Administration and the World, and we will discuss his article at CNN, The Often High Price of Bringing Detained Americans Home. Then finally, we'll look into the farcical attempted coup in Peru, which has had five presidents in two years, and speak with Joe Marie Burt, a senior fellow at the Washington Office for Latin America and a professor of political science and Latin American studies at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University. She has published widely on political violence, state-society relations, human rights, and transitional justice in Latin America, and writes about war crimes prosecutions in Guatemala for the International Justice Monitor, and is the author of Silencing Civil Society, Political Violence and the Authoritarian State in Peru. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is George Beebe, the Director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He served in government for nearly 25 years, including as director of Russia analysis at the CIA and as a White House advisor on Russia matters for Vice President Dick Cheney. 
His latest book is The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral Into Nuclear Catastrophe. Welcome to Background Briefing, George Beebe. Thanks, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, obviously, I want to talk to you about this swap between the U.S. got the woman's basketball star, Brittany Griner, back and Russia got the notorious arms dealer, Victor Boot, back. But given uh, your book, The Russia Trap, how our shadow war with Russia could spiral into nuclear catastrophe. I was struck by what Putin said yesterday, where he talked again about, he was asked about the possibility of nuclear weapons being used in Ukraine. And he said, well, we wouldn't really strike first. But on the other hand, if we were struck, what he basically talked about a counterforce strike, where the US would fire everything to neutralize and take out all of Russia's nuclear weapons, which was a, an extreme theory during the Cold War, and that therefore Russia wouldn't have a second strike capability. So why is he talking about such a far-fetched possibility? Well, I think part of the reason is that the Russians don't think it's that far-fetched. Um, they still believe, uh, and um, I think their concerns have actually gone up, not down, uh, over the past year, that the United States might conceivably actually launch a nuclear first strike, some sort of decapitation attempt or an attempt to render Russia's second strike capabilities essentially null and void. Um, now, I, I think that's uh, an exaggerated fear, obviously, but uh, from the Russian perspective, this is something that they are generally concerned about. But even during the Cold War, when they gamed out these possibilities, they were always pretty hairy, weren't they? And I don't think that we have as many weapons as we had back then. And I think even Russia, I think, has more strategic weapons than we do, don't they? Well, when it comes to strategic weapons, we're both at the same level. Mm -hmm. uh, the Russians have more tactical nuclear weapons than we do, but they don't really figure into this kind of an exchange. I think the thing that the Russians are most concerned about actually is technology things that the United States could supplement uh, a nuclear first strike with that would interfere with Russia's ability to launch its own weapons. You know, back 30, 40 years ago, um, the only thing that could take out a nuke was another nuke and one that struck, you know, essentially right on the target that it was aiming at. Today, I think the Russians have concerns that cyber uh, offensive operations, um, other kinds of uh, precision guided weapons could, in addition to those nuclear strikes, go after Russia's second strike capability. So I think they're a little more concerned today than they were back in the Cold War. But in terms of the leadership in the military, it seems that the army's in terrible shape, the Black Sea fleet's in terrible shape, the Air Force is being used to pound Ukrainian infrastructure. Wouldn't the Russian generals, etc., be more preoccupied about what's happening in Ukraine and, and the shortcomings and possibly even wanting to end this war or find an honorable way out? Well, I think no question that the Russian military leadership is quite concerned about what's going on in Ukraine conventionally right now. Uh, the Russians, in some ways, have some numerical advantages over the Ukrainians. They certainly have more men that, than, that they can put under arms. Um, they've got advantages when it comes to munitions and weaponry, 
even when you consider the support that Ukraine is getting from the West. But they have not been able to translate those numerical advantages into actual gains on the battlefield, at least not very effectively. So I think the Russians are at a point right now where they probably are relatively confident that they can hold on to much of what they've already got. But in terms of their ambitions to to take large new amounts of Ukrainian territory, I think they recognize that's extremely problematic for them. So uh, do they want a way out? Um, my guess is that they have to be thinking on their end about what the end game looks like here. And they certainly realize that they're not going to win some sort of unconditional victory over over Ukraine, where Ukraine comes to them and, and essentially sues for peace. I think they realize that's not a realistic scenario at this point. So do you think then, uh, George Beebe, that the swap, where obviously the U.S. also wanted to get Paul Whelan as well as Brittany Griner out, and the Russians equated Paul Whelan with Victor Boot, and they think that uh, Paul Whelan's a spy. But given that the deal was done, even though obviously Paul Whelan and his family are very disappointed, was that a precondition for the Biden administration to get into serious talks with Russia about an endgame vis-a-vis the war in Ukraine? Well, I rather doubt it was a precondition that the United States set. Uh, no. Um, I think it w- was in our interest all along not to link these issues. I think we wanted to deal with this prisoner swap thing uh, in and of itself rather than complicate it by bringing in other issues that we regard as not related at all. For us, this was a, a fairly straightforward issue. Uh, we had an American citizen, uh, a, a couple of American citizens in this case, that we thought were unjustly imprisoned in Russia. We wanted to bring them back, period. And we were trying to strike the best deal that we could to bring them home. Now, the Russians, I think, uh, bargained very hard on this. Uh, We went public with an offer, which is highly unusual in these sorts of situations. And and that offer was two Americans for one Russian. And the Russians said no. They simply refused to strike a deal that from their point of view was not an equal one. They insisted on strict reciprocity. And we had a hard decision to make. And the Biden administration uh, obviously said, let's bring Brittany Griner home now and we'll work on Paul Whelan uh, in the future. Uh, But I think this is an indication that the Russians are um, not eager to make concessions to us, not, not just in prisoner swaps, but on other issues as well. That doesn't mean they don't want to negotiate. Doesn't mean they don't want to find some mutually acceptable way forward. But uh, I think they believe they still have a strong negotiating hand, not just on these prisoner swaps, but on other issues as well, and including Ukraine. Well, if, the, if it wasn't a precondition, then it's clear that Putin has laid down a pretty pessimistic scenario by saying that he's prepared to continue this war for some time and probably build up for an offensive in the, in the spring. So that in itself is a depressing possibility. And also today, the entire U.S. Senate was given top secret briefings by the intelligence community. It was supposed to be about Ukraine, but uh, is there anything new going on, do you think? What was that about? 
Well, I, I could only speculate what that would be about, and I'm, I'm not really in a position to offer you an, an informed comment on that. Um, I, I can only say that from my perspective, watching this war unfold from abroad, it looks to me like the Russians are playing a game of attrition right now. They're making a bet that they can outlast us and that time is on their side. They've got more men they can throw into the battle. They've got more munitions they can throw into the battle. And they're waiting to see, can Europe hold out under what are becoming increasingly difficult economic conditions? Will European pain affect American calculations in how long we're willing to sustain this situation? And is it going to dawn on the United States uh, as well as on Europe that Ukraine is not really going to be able to make a lot more progress without paying an enormous price in uh, their own uh, losses uh, in this war? So. Um, the Russians right now are trying to, to position themselves to do some very hard bargaining on this, but I don't think they're ready actually to engage in the bargaining quite yet. They're still preparing the field. So, so is there some new initiative uh, on the U.S. side, militarily speaking? Or Obviously, there is more arms packages coming. It would seem that based upon watching Russian media, there was a lot of expectation on the part of Russians that the Republican red wave would take over the House and that the new Republican House would cut military funds for Ukraine. There is a, if you could call it a pro-Putin caucus in, in the sort of far right of the Republican House. Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, and on Fox you've got Tucker Carlson, etc., is Putin counting on that? And is that a realistic possibility that the new house might get tired of funding Ukraine? Well, um, certainly the Russians are hopeful that the United States is going to lose its enthusiasm for supporting Ukraine in this war over time. I think they recognize that's not going to happen anytime soon. Um, they're going to see what effect winter has on this um, and, and then take stock it, that's my guess sometime in the spring about where they are. We're playing this similar game on our side to what Putin is. Putin is saying, hey, look, you know, we're in this for the long haul and we can sustain this for the long haul. Um, he doesn't want to show any uh, budge, any uh, signs that he might be wavering. We're doing the same thing on our side. We want to project uh, a, an image to the Russians that we will sustain this war for as long as is necessary and that we're not going to lose uh, our enthusiasm for making sure that this war ha has a, an acceptable uh, end game. So um, I think where we wind up uh, on this remains to be seen, but my guess is we're in for a few months where both sides are essentially sending that, that very hardline signal to one another. Uh, and we'll see where we are come uh, as the weather starts to warm up a little bit in Ukraine. We'll see where things are in the battlefield. But during this cold winter, which is already beginning, you have essentially World War One style trench warfare, as far as I can tell. And I just was listening to a intercept from the Ukrainians intercepting phone calls from Russian soldiers in their foxholes to their mothers back home 
basically saying we're freezing, we have no food, they've abandoned us, people are defecting right, left and centre. You know, that's obviously it comes from the Ukrainians, so you have to take that into account. But on the other hand, my understanding is that Canada is supplying, you know, really top-of-the-line Arctic winter gear for the uh, Ukrainian troops, and I'm not sure that Russia has anything similar. They should have, given uh, the, <laughs> the nature of their weather. But clearly there have been deficiencies in the supply line in terms of Russia. So what do you make of that, George? Well, it's very hard to say. I, I think uh, clearly conditions are quite tough on the front lines. Uh, and getting adequate supplies, food, fuel, heat is, is a real concern, uh, I think most likely on both sides. So um, it's very unclear at this point how this is going to play out. So is there then any initiative? You, you're pretty much resigned to the prospect that this is going to grind on through the winter into the spring and then there'll be some kind of spring offensive, even though I guess the ground gets pretty muddy. And then we'll after that, we'll see where we stand. Is that the best we can hope for? Well, I think that's probably the best we can hope for. We're, we're not going to get this war settled anytime soon, that's for sure. None of the parties at this point are are eager for for real bargaining on this. They're not even at the negotiating table at all. Um, so we're still a ways from any kind of an end game in this. Um, what I think has to happen right now is to prepare the ground for uh, ultimate negotiations on this. So it's not as if uh, diplomats right now should be just waiting. I think preparations have to be getting underway uh, so that uh, when the time for bargaining comes, we'll be ready to do that. Uh, and uh, that's going to take a lot of advance work. So that's something that needs to be happening right now. But just in closing, uh, George Beebe, I just read a piece of the Daily Beast, which is a little bizarre, where they were citing Putin's former speechwriter saying that Putin's and his people, the Siloviki, were planning on uh, an exit strategy from Russia and they're buying property on an island off Venezuela. I know it sounds a bit fanciful, but is there any indication? I know the Kremlin's a black box, but is there any indication that Putin himself could be in trouble? Are there forces within Russia that are getting tired of this situation? It's obviously not going well for them. Well, I think Putin is under more pressure than he has been at any time in his presidency, which, of course, dates back more than 20 years. Um, and unfortunately, that pressure is not coming from the more liberal, pro-Western, more democratic parts of the Russian political spectrum. It's largely coming from hardliners, from Russian nationalists, from communists, from parts of the political spectrum that think that Putin has been too soft, uh, too willing to seek deals with the West, not willing uh, to protect Russia's compatriots abroad uh, as forcefully as they would like. Um, so he does need to be concerned, I believe, but uh, I think the prospect of his removal is coming more from the, uh, the right from the, than from the political left in Russia. Well, that's a scary prospect, isn't it? As bad as Putin is, uh, there's something worse waiting in the wings? Well, it's certainly not encouraging, no. Well, George Beebe, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. You're welcome.
And again, I've been speaking with George Beebe, who's the Director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He served in government for nearly 25 years, including as Director of Russia Analysis at the CIA and as a White House Advisor on Russian Matters for Vice President Dick Cheney. His latest book is The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an appraisal of Victor Boot, the merchant of death, and why Putin wanted him back so badly. He fastened all the triggers for the others to fire. And then you sat back and watch when the death count gets higher. You hide in your mansion. While the young people's blood flows out of their bodies and is buried in the mud. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stephen Braun, who is a former national security editor for the Associated Press and a former national correspondent based in Washington for the Los Angeles Times. He shared the Times' 1991 Pulitzer Prize for coverage of the Los Angeles riots and a 2002 Overseas Press Club International Reporting Award for Inside Al-Qaeda, a series of stories about the group's rise. And he is the co-author along with Douglas Farrow, of a book about Victor Boot titled Merchant of Death, Money, Guns, Planes, and the Man Who Makes War Possible. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Brown. Thanks so very much. So, obviously the Russians wanted, and probably Putin wanted, Victor Boot badly, and I guess the U.S. was hoping they could swap him for Paul Whelan, who the Russians consider a spy, but instead they were able to swap him for Brittany Griner, who is a woman's basketball player and who was busted on a very, very <laughs> weak case, shall we say. So she was the bait. So do you think Putin got a good deal? Well, uh, my understanding is, yeah, I, that they, you know, that the United States pressed very hard for uh, boot offering boot for both Whelan and for Griner, uh, and the Russians uh, basically came back and, and and were basically told them, if you want Whelan as well, you have to add to the pot. And there were other Russians uh, we were told uh, held by not necessarily the United States but other Western nations, and the United States couldn't make those deliverables. So ultimately, it came down to. Griner and and Victor Boot uh, and uh, my my hunch is the administration wanted to make this deal very badly before Christmas uh, and they apparently were able to do it. So let's talk about Victor Boot since you wrote about him in Merchants of Death, Money, Guns, Planes, and the Man Who Makes War Possible. He's considered one of the most odious people on the planet, is he not? Uh, largely because of what he pioneered in the late 1990s and early 2000s. You know, prior to him, uh, most uh, arms deals were done on a sort of one-by-one spec basis, um, and many of them were basically handled by governments. Um, But what he was able to do uh, by uh, basically putting together a a fleet of Russian-built planes uh, upwards of of 60 at, at their high point 
was, um, you know, he could basically deliver armed systems, weapons, materiel to any anybody who was willing to uh, offer him money. Uh, and uh, through the late 90s, early 2000s, he was largely, you know, an independent operator, but he had what is called Krisha uh, in Russia, which is a Russian term for roof. But uh, in the underworld, what it means is uh, uh, you've got, uh, uh, if not paymasters, you have uh, uh, important people behind you. And in Boots' case, it was always believed, by, uh, the people that spoke to us, uh, that the people that provided his Krisha were in the Russian government, largely in the military intelligence apparatus. Yeah, Krisha being a protection racket, essentially. But yes. So what do you think Putin wants from him then? I mean, why is he valuable to Putin? That's the fascinating question. Um, I mean, Boot is not an old man by, you know, by, you know, intelligence standards. He's in his 50s. Um, he, he uh, you know, he, he clearly knows the game. He knows how to source weapons. Um, uh, and uh, in some of these cases, uh, he has dealt apparently with, with, with some of the the nations that Russia now is, is desperate to, to work deals with, particularly Iran. Um, some of his planes made regular landings in Tehran uh, in the early 2000s. So it would not be uh, out of the range of possibility that, he, that there are folks inside uh, the Iranian government that he's dealt with before. But part of the problem, uh, he's been out of, you know, out of, he's been out of circulation for quite some time now. Um, you know, he's been in, in a federal prison, since uh, 2012, um, and you know the Russian government has moved on. Uh, in particular, uh, you know his his uh, perch, if you will, uh, has been filled by uh, Prigozhin. Uh, and uh, I'm blanking on his first name, but he's known as the chef, and right. he now runs the Wagner Group, which is mercenaries who operate in Africa and elsewhere in, in the Third World. Which you know, arguably, Victor Boot would be doing now if he had not been uh, caught by the um, the DEA and and Thai authorities in Bangkok in two thousand eight. Well, he was dealing arms in Africa, was he not, Victor Boot? Uh, he was in Liberia and some of them, you know, with their child soldiers and blood diamonds, etc. Absolutely. Uh, also, he sold arms to the FARC guerrillas in. Colombia, and the U.S. That, accused that, him of selling arms to people that kill Americans, right? So what correct. kind of case did they make? Uh, the case they made was, was, at least for a federal jury in New York in 2011, was pretty ironclad. Um, they, uh, uh, they, they put together a sting, and they used uh, undercover informants uh, who lured Boot to Bangkok, tried to put together an arms deal to aid the FARC, and they were they had him on tape the whole time, um, uh, you know, for the purposes of the, of the U.S. government. It was a fairly strong case. The judge in the case, the federal judge in the case, was highly skeptical. Um, and uh, when it came time to sentence him, she could have given him up to 99 years. She only gave him 25, um, which was the, the, the lowest she could possibly give under the circumstances. But the federal jury, unlike the judge, felt that he needed to go away, and they convicted him on uh, four counts, including con conspiracy to uh, kill Americans. But he still got the 25-year sentence, right? He did. 
Um, and uh, he, you know, had only served uh, a decade or so. So he would have spent quite a bit of more time uh, had the, uh, the government not freed him and sent him back. Um, the, the, the irony is that the trade took place uh, on a tarmac in the United Arab Emirates, which is where Boot was largely based in the late 1990s and early 2000s. And, uh, you know, where he, uh, you know, a lot of his business uh, uh, operated out of. So just in the last couple of minutes, then, what's your sense then of this deal? I know there was a lot of pressure on Biden because Brittany Griner is a prominent figure in sports and her wife was in the Oval Office when they finally got the phone call to talk to her and she was flown into Texas from the Emirates where the swap took place. And, you know, we've established, because you did so in your book, Merchants of Death, that this guy was a horrible person and she seems to be a very innocent person, obviously made a rather bad judgment, but nevertheless was given a hideous uh, sentence in in a gulag that was apparently just horrible. So <laughs> I was going to say, what does this say about Russian justice? Well, that's kind of a stupid question, isn't it? Uh, yeah, uh, the, 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 the more concerning question, I think, is other than the fact that, that you know, I, I think most folks in the law enforcement community are, are, are horrified at the, at the notion that uh, Victor Boot's getting out early. Um, as are uh, uh, NGO uh, folks who operate around the world and have seen the, you know, the, the toll that his weapons took. Um, but the, 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 the more concerning question is, uh, what does this set up in the future uh, for uh, despots, um, terror groups around the world who can easily kidnap or uh, trump up charges against an American citizen in order to get back somebody who's been extradited to the United States, uh, you know, uh, under lawful circumstances and, and face charges and convicted. That's the, that's the real concern here is that, uh, you know, Brittany Griner uh, deserves to be freed, but the person that uh, was freed in order for her to, be, to become free is uh, a heinous criminal and, and doesn't belong back where he is going. Well, Stephen Brown, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Brown, who was a former national security editor for the Associated Press and a former national correspondent based in Washington for the Los Angeles Times. He shared the Times 1991 Pulitzer Prize for coverage of the Los Angeles riots and a 2002 Overseas Press Club International Reporting Award for Inside Al-Qaeda, a series of stories about the group's rise. And he's the co-author along with Douglas Farah, of the book about Victor Boot, Merchants of Death, Money, Guns, Planes, and the Man Who Made War Possible. And joining us now is Peter Bergen, the author and editor of eight books, including three New York Times bestsellers and four Washington Post Best Nonfiction Books of the Year, a vice president of the New American Foundation. He's a professor at Arizona State University and a national security analyst for CNN. He has testified before congressional committees 18 times, about national security issues and has held teaching positions at Harvard and Johns Hopkins University. His latest book is The Cost of Chaos, The Trump Administration and the World. And he has an article at CNN, The Often High Price of Bringing Detained Americans Home. Welcome to Background Briefing, Peter Bergen. Thank you, Ian. So, Peter, I take it the the lesson that we all should learn uh, from 
the prisoner swap of Brittany Griner for Victor Boot is that Americans should be wary about traveling to countries such as Russia, China, Iran, and Venezuela, where governments practice detaining Americans in order to gain leverage over the United States. Is that the lesson? Well, that is one of the lessons. I mean, it, it you know, uh, in fact, you know, the, the, the Biden administration has, uh, the, there was something called the Levinson Act. It was named after Bob Levinson, who was, who did, who was a former FBI uh, agent who went to Iran and then disappeared and then died in captivity. And the Levinson Act was passed uh, in, in his memory. And, and, you know, it's really an effort to um, make it, give give the government more tools to deal with the question of wrongfully detained Americans. I mean, in the in the past, you know, groups like ISIS or Al-Qaeda would kidnap Americans and they'd be held hostage. What has become increasingly clear in the last several years is that states like Russia, China, Venezuela, Iran are holding Americans. And, you know, it's not like dealing with a terrorist group who usually just wants money or some other kind of concession, you know, with it, when you're dealing with a state, and you, you know, the United States has a rule around no concessions when people are taken. But so a prisoner, it, you know, it, it tends to be that if a state takes somebody who's an American and they are wrongfully detained, I mean, the easiest thing for the United States to do is to give up a prisoner. And in the case of Brittany Griner, it was Victor Boot, who was the most notorious arms dealer in the world. Um, who might be very useful to Putin with his war in Ukraine because Putin's running out of certain kinds of ammunition. Uh, but it's not the first time this happened. Trevor Reed was a former U.S. Marine who was swapped earlier this year for a Russian drug dealer. We saw two Venezuelan uh, drug dealers who were swapped for seven Americans who'd been held in Venezuela for many years earlier this year. We saw Mark Frerichs, who was an American contractor held in Afghanistan, he was swapped for a pretty notorious drug king, kingpin, uh, an Afghan who has been held here and held in the United States for 17 years or so. Uh, so, you know, this is kind of the way this is unfortunately the, the calculus the Biden administration has to make. I mean, it's of course, you don't want to, you know, I'm sure the Drug Enforcement Administration wasn't happy that these drug dealers have been given up. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, you're getting Americans out and. You know, no one's going to just give up their effectively their these wrongfully detained American citizens just because they're having a good day. They're going to want something in exchange, and sometimes the price can be pretty high. With Brittany Griner, who was in on, you know, had a ten-year sentence, and was actually in a penal colony. Obviously, the charges against her, she had a, a very small, you know, a very minor drug charge, and yet she had this you know, very long sentence that was in a penal colony. Victor Boot, you know, was serving a long sentence. Um, you know, is is uh, Nicholas Cage starred in the film about him, uh, based on his life, uh, Lord of War. You know, is he's a major arms dealer. So I mean, the cases are very, very different. But that was the deal that was made. And you know, at the end of the day, the Biden administration wants to get Americans out. Their families want them out. Um, and you know, who can who can argue with that? And of course, Peter, you mentioned the case in Venezuela, where seven detained Americans were released for two uh, Venezuelans uh, for drugs, cocaine smuggling. Those two Venezuelans happen to be the nephews of Venezuela's first lady, Maduro's wife. Yeah, so, you know, they obviously the Maduro government had a pretty strong incentive to make this swap. And those Americans had been held, uh, at least five of them had been held for quite a long period of time. 
Um, and yeah, so you know the the deals are you know they're not um, they're, they're not. I mean, there's a reason they take some time, and obviously they're probably people of the Justice Department are pushing back. And but at the end of the day, the, you know these seven Americans got out of Venezuela, and these two relatives of the Venezuela's first lady um, were exchanged, and that's the kind of deal that you know. Yeah, we're going to. I think we're going to see more of Paul Wellen, who's also been held, a former U.S. Marine, who's also been held in Russia, wasn't part of the exchange that happened with Brittany Griner. There had been some speculation that he might also be released, but I think the Russians were only going to do a one for one. They weren't going to release two Americans for Victor Boot, and I'm sure they're going to strike a pretty hard, you know, pretty tough deal for to get Paul Wellen out. I hope that the Brittany Griner exchange, you know, sets the stage for getting Paul Wellen out, who's been held for around three years now. Um, and we'll, but we'll see. I mean, they're not, again, I mean, the Russians are not going to just give up Paul Wellen just because they're having a good day. They're going to require some kind of pretty major concession from the U.S. government. And typically it's going to be a prisoner swap. So you, we haven't talked about Iran, and Iran basically almost invented modern hostage-taking, didn't they, not when this new regime came into power, taking all these American diplomats hostage for 444 days, and they've sort of they've perfected the art, have they not, of grabbing hostages, including yeah, prominent journalists. Yeah, yeah and well, the, Iran, I mean, the Iranians, you know, I mean, it, it's very dangerous. Obviously, there are a lot of dual-national Iranian-Americans, and you know, the Iranians view if you if you're a dual national, you know, from the Iranian perspective, you go to Iran, they, they see they see you as Iranian. And so we've had a lot of cases of Iranian Americans being detained. I mean, one of the most well known ones is Jason Rezaian, who was working for the Washington Post and continues to do so. He was held for, you know, I think about two years. Um, and he was uh, released in the context of the Iranian nuclear deal in twenty fifteen around that time um, by the, during the Obama administration. So, yeah, I mean, the Iranians certainly have been doing this for, for, for a long time. And I think one thing that the Biden administration wants to make clear is, you know, if you go on a holiday in Russia, you know, you need to be careful now. And, you know, obviously going to a, no, no one's take not too many Americans are going on vacation in, in Iran anyway. Uh, but these countries are, you know, can, can, can take you. Um, and they can take you on, you know, spurious grounds. They can take you, you know, in the case of Paul Wellen, they the espionage charges against him. And in the case of Trevor Reed, there were espionage cases uh, charges against against him as well. Uh, both of, both of which, you know, the U.S. government says are completely spurious. Um, and obviously, with Brittany Griner, you know, the the drug charge against her in almost any Western country would be like a misdemeanor. But here it was turned into a you know, major felony and she was sent to a penal colony. So, um, you know, it, 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 I, the Biden administration is trying to make it clear that you, you need to be careful when you go to certain countries that engage in these practices. Well, indeed, uh, if you go to Indonesia now, you can't engage in premarital sex. So it's um, yeah. not exactly as draconian as uh, Russia, but still, you've got to be wary nowadays. Yeah, and and uh, but you know some a lot of you know the the, the when people are detained, there are sort of um, I, mean, I don't think the Indonesian government, as a matter of sort of state policy, is 
detaining people on complete on pretextual grounds in right. order to seek bridge with the U.S. government. Because I mean, I, it's really uh, regimes that are hostile to the United States that are doing this, and Indonesia is is not in the hostile camp. No, no, I would being a little facetious, but still, I think people should recognize what the laws are of the countries that they visit. Uh, and well, I that's think, true. I mean, yeah, yeah, drug drug trafficking in Singapore, you can be executed for, right? So it's, it's you know, it's uh, you obviously have to be cognizant of the local laws. Well, Peter Bergen, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Peter Bergen, who's an author or editor of eight books, including three New York Times bestsellers and four Washington Post best nonfiction books of the year, a vice president of the New America Foundation. He's a professor at Arizona State University and a national security analyst for CNN. And he's testified before congressional committees 18 times about national security issues and has held teaching positions at Harvard and Johns Hopkins University. And his latest book is The Cost of Chaos, The Trump Administration and the World. And he has an article at CNN, The Often High Price of Bringing Detained Americans Home. We can take a brief station break back looking to the farcical coup attempt in Peru, which has had five presidents in two years. I was gambling in Havana. I took a little risk. Send lawyers, guns and money. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Joe Marie Burt, who's a senior fellow at the Washington Office for Latin America and a professor of political science and Latin American studies at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, who has published widely on political violence, state society relations, human rights, and transitional justice in Latin America. She writes about war crimes prosecutions in Guatemala for International Justice Monitor and is the author of Silencing Civil Society, Political Violence and the Authoritarian State in Peru. Welcome to Background Briefing, Joe Marie Burt. Hi, Ian. It's nice to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Joe Marie. And Peru, of course, has been through five presidents in little under two years. But the last 48 hours have been pretty tumultuous and... There's been a coup attempt and then a, a new uh, president's been sworn in. But there's also an element f- of farce to it. So how does it strike you, what just happened in Peru? Oh, yeah, I, I, I think it's great you said that because one of the first things I tweeted as this whole thing was unfolding was that history, Marx's famous dictum that history repeats itself the first time as tragedy, the second time as farce. Why? Because, you know, there was a... Uh, in Peru, they call it a self-coup, an autogolpe, carried out in 1992 by then-President Alberto Fujimori, like Castillo, who was just removed from office, an outsider. Uh, and his autogolpe was successful in the sense that he achieved his goal of closing down the Congress with the backing of the military and ruling for the next um, several years in an authoritarian fashion. This time around, however, it did not go so well for Mr. Castillo within literally a matter of hours of declaring uh, his autogolpe or his self-coup in which he was um, dissolving the Congress, 
dissolving the judiciary, um, promising new elections that would then write a new constitution and establishing a state of emergency. Literally within a few hours, he was arrested and is now ironically side by side uh, Fujimori in a special forces police base in prison. So truly farcical, but also profoundly sad because um, Peruvian democracy has been on this sort of roller coaster ride of instability for the last um, six or, or so years. And I don't see it um, coming to an end anytime soon because the underlying problems are still there. So you could write a movie, I staged a coup and nobody came. <laughs> Pretty much. That's exactly right. So that's what happened. He just literally, the the government, uh, the parliament voted overwhelmingly to remove him. The, he was missing. They thought he was at the Mexican embassy, but they eventually arrested him fairly right. shortly. And his vice president, she's going to be taking over, right? Dina Boluarte. She was in yeah, fact Dina Boluarte. In. She right. was in fact sworn in yesterday and is now the constitutional president of Peru. Yes. And her um, term is due to last until 2026. But yeah. she's on the free Peru ticket with him, right? With well, she was, um, but both she and Castillo uh, uh, distanced themselves from the free Peru party um, over differences uh, with the leader and other members of the party. And that party has since fragmented into several tiny little parts. Um, so... Uh, that's important to keep in mind, I think. But Castillo is a is a what a formal rural school teacher. That's uh, right. Who got elected with? I mean, he he led a wildcat strike, didn't he? Didn't that how he came to prominence? Yeah, that, was back, that was back in 2017. It's probably the only thing that ever uh, people refer to in terms of the public knowledge of him referred to that that strike, and that was really it. Um, and he really was not a politician. He really didn't have uh, a, a career in, you know, in 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 a way that you would think of him as, you know, a likely president. In fact, he was quite an accidental president, in the sense that um, he he ran uh, with the Peru uh, the, the uh, Peru Libre Free Peru Party, which is a Marxist-Leninist party, uh, in part because the president of that party, Vladimir Serron, um, couldn't run himself because he had he was re he was had been recently convicted of corruption and he's prohibited, therefore, from running for president. Um, so he invited Castillo to run. And, you know, the, 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 the field, uh, the political field in 2021 was extremely fragmented. Peruvians were very disillusioned with politicians and political parties yeah insofar as they can be called political parties in peru they're really um just small movements that come together around a figure and then they tend to disappear after a while um and this was of course in the context of the pandemic in which peru is especially hard um i think we may have talked about this at one point peru has the highest mortality rate per capita in the world, despite the fact that it's, you know, not at all the poorest or most unequal country in the world, which sort of tells you quite a bit about the failure of the of the um, uh, public health system and of the government to really 
address the, the pandemic in Peru. Um, so people were very unhappy. Um, the, the highest, um, in the polls right before the elections, the highest vote getter was, I'm not going to vote for anybody. <laughs> um, and in fact, in the first round election, Castillo made it to the first round, along with Keiko Fujimori, the daughter of dictator Alberto Fujimori, um, with less than 20% of the vote, each of them. So not exactly a strong mandate. They went into a second round and in part, I think people, especially poor Peruvians who were kind of sick of politics as usual, sort of fed up with the neoliberal economic system, saw in Pedro Castillo, who himself, you know, as you said, a rural school teacher, someone from a very humble background, from the rural part of Peru, from Cajamarca, which is in the northern Andes. Um, they saw in him, you know, something they'd, they'd not really seen before, someone who was like them. Um, and they related to him and they believed his promise that he was going to enact you know, real um, political and economic change in Peru. Um, but he also was elected in, in good part because Keiko Fujimori, um, you know, she has her base. There's no doubt about that. But she's also got a very strong anti-vote. Um, in fact, she ran for office three times. That was her third, 2021 was her third attempt to run for president. And she was defeated each time in the second round, in good part because so many Peruvians mobilized and in the, I'm not just talking mobilized to vote, but in the street, massive anti-Keiko rallies. Um, because, you know, th th she's seen as someone who, uh, no, no apologies in um, defending the authoritarian and very corrupt legacy of her father. Her father, Alberto Fujimori, who I mentioned is in jail for human rights abuses and corruption, um, is considered among the, he's always, you know, how they did do these top 10 lists of the most corrupt presidents or, or, or dictators in the world. Well, he's always on that top 10 list. Right. Um, well, and, and he was brought into power uh, in a coup uh, in conjunction with the military. Well, he was elected in 1990 and then in 92 carried out a self-coup where he shut huh. down Congress, shut down the judiciary with the backing of the military. Yes. And he ruled in authoritarian fashion for the remainder of his time in office until 2000 when he fled the country uh, for Japan, the home of his parents. Um, where he was granted uh, citizenship. And honestly, most people, I think, thought, myself included, that that was where he would spend out his the rest of his days. But miraculously, um, he he went to Chile, I think, trying to, in, in 2005, with an eye on launching a political comeback in 2006. And he was arrested. And he was eventually extradited back to Peru, put on trial, and convicted for his role in human rights abuses and uh, corruption and abuse of authority. Um, so that's the, that's the government that Keiko Fujimori sort of models herself on. So this right. is the reason why she has such a strong anti-vote, both the legacy of her father and her unwillingness to, you know, grapple with the, the legacy of her father's government, you know? Right. I think that's, that's but, the issue there. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the, the Castillo administration as short as it was mm -hmm. it was constantly beset with chaos ineptitude uh, accusations and he was impeached three times the third time uh, was no no, no there were attempts to no no there twice, were attempts yeah. 
to impeach him three times. Yeah, the first two they fell short, but then the, right. the, the other one that was just underway, it right. looked as though there was a two-thirds majority needed to, to convict him, and that's why he moved with this coup attempt, presumably. So, But are the charges against him for taking kickbacks on infrastructure deals and selling government jobs to the highest bidders, are they genuine charges or political charges? Um, it does appear that there are real, uh, real corrupt. There's real corruption going on there. Um, I think the evidence was building, and my understanding is that yesterday morning, the for the first time, a member of his administration, he was someone in the Ministry of Housing, I believe, I believe, and I believe he was speaking before Congress, testified about a bribery scheme that he was involved in, in which he directly handed over, you know, a certain sum of money, whatever it was, a hundred thousand uh, soles to uh, Castillo himself directly. Um, however, these are, you know, a president who is accused of corruption still has the, um, in the constitution, the right to be investigated before he can be removed. Right. So clearly there are were, were, were real charges, but in the end, he was removed not because of the corruption charges, but because he himself uh, violated the Constitution by trying to shut down the Congress and, and rule by decree. So he, I mean, he actually committed political suicide. I mean, it's, and we were talking earlier about how, how, how farcical this was, and I think that really is, um, I mean, he had no support, and within within an hour of his public statement that he was closing the Congress and so on, most of his ministers had resigned. His own lawyer resigned. Um, the Constitutional Court weighed in saying that, oh, sorry, the, the Congress then accelerated the impeachment vote and and actually were able to use um, a very valid argument that he tried to he via he was violating the constitution by trying to dismiss to shut down the congress and were able to vacate him that way right so so regard so there definitely were charges of corruption uh, there's no doubt about that and and you mentioned ineptitude this was i mean he was a not only a political outsider but um really lacked um the leadership qualities and the experience that that one would really want to see but I do think it's also important to highlight that the hard right parties in Congress from the very beginning um, refused to acknowledge the election of, of, of Pedro Castillo. They charged after he had won by, by a slim margin, by the way, but after he won, they claimed that there was fraud with no evidence and continued to persist in that. Um, discourse that he, this was a fraudulent, he's, he's not a, a, legitimate, a legitimate president and so forth. Uh, and then they pursued, you know, t you know, one after another effort to uh, have Castillo removed, including the two previous impeachment attempts, but also other things were going on that were, were geared at trying to force him out of power so that the right could take over. So I think it's mm -hmm. important to sort of keep in mind the broader context of sort of ongoing confrontation between the executive and the legislature, which is not unique to this government. It's marked Peru for the past six years. And that's why, as you said, we, we, Peru has had six presidents in the last six years, none of whom have completed the normal five-year presidential term. So it's a broader problem than just this government. And I think that's really important to keep in mind.
So in the last couple of minutes, then, what do you think will be the fate of Dina Bolhuate? She's 60 years old. Her political term lasts until 2026. What yep. are the chances? I mean, you you describe what the far right's been doing in Peru, taking a page out of Trump's playbook of Stop the Steal. Yep. So uh, will yep. they go after her since she's also a leftist? Well, I mean, I think that this remains to be seen whether she's going to try to stick with her left-wing program and buck the power of the right-wing controlled Congress, which is going to be very dangerous for her to do, or whether she will make a pact with the right-wing parties in the Congress in order to stay in power. So those are two scenarios that people are talking about. And she has called for a national unity cabinet, which I think is, in the current context, a smart thing to do. Um, she's very closely tied to Kasimi. In addition to being his vice president, she was um, the minister of development and social inclusion in his cabinet until literally two weeks ago. Um, so she definitely has a legitimacy problem and she, she was an elected president. So she definitely has a legitimacy problem. She doesn't have a party. Um, she doesn't have anything resembling a majority in Congress. So my bet is she's going to face, she, this is going to be a weak government in a similar way that the Castillo government was a weak government. The one difference is she is a lawyer. She's a seasoned professional. She's worked in government for many years. She was the head of the um, a key government office in charge of identity documents and, and civil status uh, situations. So she she's an experienced, professional, smart woman with a certain level of charisma. So, you know, how adept she's going to be at dealing with a very complex situation, I think remains to be seen. But 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 let's see. Let's see what she does. Well, Jean-Marie Bird, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It was a pleasure talking with you, Ian. Take care. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Jean-Marie Bird, who's a senior fellow at the Washington Office for Latin America and a professor of political science and Latin American studies at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, who has published widely on political violence, state-society relations, human rights and transitional justice in Latin America. She writes about war crimes prosecutions in Guatemala for International Justice Monitor and is the author of Silencing Civil Society, Political Violence and the Authoritarian State in Peru. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door.
your fire. 